Thanks, Tom. Like Simon, I had thought I could do this by sort of running across the platform backwards and forwards, but uh, maybe that's not a good idea, just to keep your eyes focused on me all the time. We're on Hebrews 11. Are you excited about Hebrews 11? Yes. That's about 10 of you anyway. That's a good start. Um, Shall we start with a simple idea? By faith him, by faith him, by faith him, by faith her, why not you? That's what the author of Hebrews 11 is trying to say. He's trying to say that all these people lived by faith, which probably means, as verse 1 has reminded us, though they couldn't see necessarily, they couldn't see what was going to happen, they didn't know where they were going, but by faith they followed the God they worshipped. And that's why we've got Hebrews 11 here. This section of Hebrews 11 is a huge swathe of Israel's history. Abraham, very fully covered by the author. He was seen as the father of the nation, a very significant figure still today in Israel. Genesis 12 has told us that this was God who was promising Abraham a land and a people. Uh, that didn't get off for a very good start, did it really? Because uh, his wife, Sarah, could not have children. She was past the age of childbearing. So the promise must have seemed rather strange to Abraham. What, me, a nation? I can't even have a child. Faith. To believe something that seems almost impossible. Now we move on today to, to Isaac. Isaac, the, the son who had nearly been sacrificed. And Isaac wanted this tradition, this, this ongoing thing of God's people to keep going. And, and so he wanted to pass on the blessing to the next generation. So he sent his son Esau out to go hunting because he wanted to give him a blessing. Very traditional thing to do in that culture. And he, he sent, go out and get me a tasty dish. A bit like sending my son out to McDonald's or something. You know, go out there and get this tasty dish and then I can bless you. Rebecca, Isaac's wife, had always favored Jacob, the younger son. He really was the favorite. And so while Esau was out hunting, she helped Jacob prepare a tasty dish and even dressed him up so that he would feel like the son that had gone out there already. Isaac is fool, passes on the blessing to the younger son, Jacob, the smooth man, rather than the hairy man who was Esau. She helped Jacob prepare a tasty dish. And the fractious became terrible. The family had become completely dysfunctional. Jacob had run away. Esau holds a grudge. And yet Hebrews says in that first section, it says that Isaac blessed his sons. And the reason he blessed him, because it says quite clearly, as to the future, this was going to go on. This was not just something that happened with Abraham and there it stopped. This has got to go on. God's people have to go on growing. They have to go on developing. They have to go on looking for the next generation. He blessed his sons in good faith. And in some ways, it's quite encouraging for me anyway to see that in this tense, dysfunctional family, God is still at work. With all the trickery and horribleness and lies and deceit, God is still at work. After that, it gets a little simpler. Jacob, despite his earlier trickery, knows that God's blessing must be kept going. So he blesses the sons of Joseph, who were, of course, his grandsons. 
And then we get right to the end of that. We see that Joseph, at the end of his life, was insistent that his bones were carried back to the promised land. Now, I don't know if you've made a sort of... I, I was doing something, thinking about the other day. What, what, where do I want to end up, you know? My bones. But for Joseph, it's significant because God had said, there is a land, there is a place where I want my people to be. That piece of real estate, which we now call Israel, that is God's promise to you. And therefore, Joseph, who spent most of his life in Egypt, knows that his bones are in the wrong place. Take them home. Take them home. Friends, we're going home. Did you know that? We're going home. We're going to be in God's place, enjoying God's blessing, God's presence, God's rule. It's called heaven. And so this place here is where Joseph wants to be. He doesn't want to be in Egypt. He was a prince of Egypt, as the film told us, wasn't it? But that's not where he wants to be. And at this stage in the patriarchal period, God's people were no more than a family. So it was important that God's blessing was passed on from generation to generation to generation. The promise to Abraham that he would father a great nation is still there. It's got to be kept going. Just reminded me as I was thinking about this how passionate we should be about the next generation. Are we content just to be here because this is our place? Or are we thinking the next generation. You see those children on that screen just now? How important are they to you and to me who are way past children's age? Well, let me tell you, they are our responsibility. To pray for, maybe not to be involved. Simon's talked about serving. If you can, that's brilliant. But that is not just what we can do. We can pray. Every time those children go out, if we're here at 11, we pray for that next generation. We're told, we're commanded in Psalm 78 verse 4 to pray for the children and to tell them the praiseworthy deeds of God. And it's a command. It's not a kind of gentle, persuasive, would you mind awfully if you did. We are told to tell the next generation. Now, these patriarchs, to them what followed was important. The next generation was important, and we must be the same in our life for God right here in this place. Now, Hebrews continues, we go on with our hall of faith, as I've called it, continues through this passage to the great period. There's a 400-year gap between Joseph and Moses. Now, that's why when we get to Exodus 1, we see there's a new king around who did not know Joseph. The dynasty had changed, so that's not surprising. There's a huge gap, and by the time we get there, uh, we've got a nation rather than a family, because they've had 400 years to grow and develop, living in that Nile Delta, you know, at the top there, land of Goshen, pharaohs building projects, that's what they did. And uh, we, we get to the life of Moses. Now, Moses has already been lauded in chapter 3 of Hebrews as someone who'd given his life uh, the, the phrase that you could use is servant faithfulness. He was very highly regarded. Actually, in the first century, Moses was highly regarded in, in Christian communities. Even though the centrality of Christ was there, Moses was incredibly highly regarded. And the author's treatment of Moses begins with the faith of his parents. 
Moses' subsequent saving acts would not have happened without faithful parents. He didn't just identify, he did not identify rather with the house of Pharaoh, we're told. He wanted to be identified with the people of God. He knew it from the beginning. He knew who he was. Yes, he was a prince of Egypt. Yes, he did live in the court of Pharaoh. But he started off by being put in the Nile. Now, most babies were put in the Nile like that. Moses was put in there like that. And do you know what he was put into? An ark. Same word as Noah. A place of security in God because God had a purpose for him to save his people. And so even then, this wonderful idea of God's person, God's purposes, God's place was done through putting a little baby in a river. You can work all sorts of ideas around that if you want to. I haven't got time this morning to do it. Moses' parents were good. They knew the king's worry that the Israelites were growing in number after 400 years. They'd become this huge nation, and he was panicking about it. And they were a threat. But the parents were wily, and he ends up in an Egyptian court, thanks to the kindness of Pharaoh's daughter, And there he would be in a place which later he would go and have to defend his people. When he got there at plague time, he knew it like the back of his hand. He knew what went on there. So he could go in and argue his case to release his people. I expect many of us are thankful for wise parents. We should pray for parents here, I'm sure you do as they seek to guide their children through the cultural maze that they live in these days. Pharaoh was threatened, so he lashed out in this cruel, vindictive way. And people who rule by power, aren't they bullies? Often. And I guess it teaches us that powerful bullies in our world will cause pain. You can bring that right up to date, can't you? Pharaoh was a bully. No two ways about it. In a world today which would squeeze us into its values, we we need to decide where we stand on moral and social issues. And the next section about Moses is fascinating. It says this, he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. It's a, as for me, I will serve the Lord moment. And that's important in our day. The prince of Egypt, who could have lived in this lavish luxury, chose to be identified with the people of God. I think this raises a huge, significant issue for us in these days, doesn't it? Who will we be? Who do we want to be? Who are we, whether we're bankers or clerks or sports people or librarians or whatever, at the root of us, what are we? What am I? What am I? I was talking to, I work with, Wimbledon had to come up once, didn't it? Uh, I work with a couple of firemen on my gangway. And uh, yesterday, uh, I told them I was having a day off here. 
Um, and they said, well, what will you be doing? I said, I'll be preaching tomorrow morning. I went through my sermon with him, um, briefly, not 20 minutes. And, and he said, so, so for you, the most important thing in life is Jesus Christ. I said, yeah, that's right. Oh, he said, I used to be like that. I used to go to church. And you know, the more I, I live in this world, the more I find people who say things just like that. Say, well, I, well, I used to be. I used to be a choir boy. My, my colleague in the stewarding team is, is an ex-choir boy. Uh, guys, there's, there's all sorts of people around who got bits in their past which, which are kind of God things. And if only we could tap in and say, well, as for me, if they were, if they were clear about our identity, what we believe, what we think is most important, what gets us up in the morning is that relationship with Jesus Christ. Our primary identity is living by faith in the Son of God who loved us and died for us and rose again. And therefore, we need to be clear. And it's known uh, in, in this passage, it's fascinating this, I think, that it says that Moses did this for the sake of Christ. Do you read that? Do you pick it up? He's 1,200 years before Jesus. But he's identified as someone who behaved as if he was following Christ. And that's what God wants for us. And the deliverance of God's people from Egypt remains today a significant event in Jewish history. It's something that matters to them almost more than anything. Passover strictly observed in Jewish homes. And if you're not there, if you're not in Israel, do you know what they say at the end of it? Some of you do. Oh, next year in Jerusalem. I want to go home. I want to go where I, I know I'm secure. That place, this Passover, is a beautiful picture of what happened to Jesus. The shedding of the blood of the Lamb was a a sacrifice to save God's people. That's why John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That Passover thing is a beautiful picture. The shedding of blood to save the people. And the blessing to the next generation was passed on because the firstborn of Israel weren't killed. They were the next generation. The firstborn got out of Egypt and they got there to the place where God wanted them to be. Nearly, but we'll come to that in a minute. But take a look at Moses' um, departure from Egypt. It says he didn't fear the king's anger. Now, you need to understand that phrase. The king's anger meant death or what he fancied, basically. And totally... Um, complete autocratic leader who could say what he wanted. And this is surely a very big by faith, isn't it? With all of Pharaoh's power, might, his decision to leave is massive. How would you take a quarter of a million people out of a land knowing that they could be caught up with, killed, whatever? And Moses says, that's the way we're going that way. Come on. We're off. And we told that Moses saw him who is invisible. Do you see that in the passage? 
saw him who was invisible. And that's where we're back to that verse in 11.1 again. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. We do not see heaven, but we are certain of it. We're going there. We're going the way to that. And we're told that Moses did that, uh, as it were, completely blind. He, he didn't have something you know, written in a notebook or something, a, a working manual. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and now of Moses, was leading him to a place of security and promise. Now, I don't know if you ever faced an army. We get a bit of a picture of this today, don't we, on our news bulletins. But just imagine what it's like, the next bit of the story, to be stood there, unarmed, where to go, Red Sea, army, fast approaching. Not pretty, is it? But it says in my Bible, by faith, all the Egyptians were drowned and the people walked through on dry land. Now, I don't know the, the feeling, but we know it, don't we, from the great song in Exodus 15 of Moses and Miriam, the, the great shout of joy. Do you sometimes have these moments where you think, I cannot see a way out of this? I'm stood here, there's that and there's this, and if that happens, there's, oh no, this will happen. Uh, where will I go? I'm facing every bit of grot I can think of, and I don't know a way out of it. That's Moses. Backs to the wall time. And it's easy for us but to look at this story and know the consequences. We know how it ended. But if you're stood there facing it, that ain't funny. And yet the wonderful thing is God delivered our backs to the Red Sea. When you're facing the Red Sea issue, do remember that God has given you faith for something you cannot yet see. So trust him. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea on dry land, and the Egyptians were drowned. The issue was sorted. And after 40 years of desert wanderings, not mentioned in Hebrews, the 40 years, Deuteronomy tells us it takes 11 days to get from there to there, from Egypt to up to Israel. They took 40 years, and certainly it wasn't a time full of faith, was it? It was full of grumblings. And if you draw a map, it's quite fun to do this. I've done this on the foundation course that I've been teaching this year. You kind of draw a sort of wiggly, squiggly line around the desert. You know, that's, that's what it was like, 40 years of going here, there, and everywhere. Moaning as you go, the food around here is rubbish. It's better back in Egypt, you know. And that's how it was. Until they get to the place where they're about to cross the Jordan, and they cross it. And the events around Jericho are very dramatic, aren't they? As they're recorded here. Now, this, of course, is Joshua, not Moses. Now, if I'd have been asked to stand uh, with my trumpet and walk around a city for seven days blowing it, uh, I don't think I'd be particularly pleased because I'm not sure what the outcome might have been. But that's what they were told to do, and uh, this is where they did it, round and round. If you go there today, there's still evidence that the walls did, in fact, fall down, the walls of Jericho. That, by the way, is the only ice cream company in the Bible. You did know that, didn't you? Walls of Jericho. Don't, oh, be quiet. 
<laughs> I'll see you after, Mr. James. And, and so, so we have this, and then, and then tucked into this, tucked into this, you've got uh, Rahab. Extraordinary. She's mentioned here. The prostitute of Jericho. And even she gets it right. She knows that this God is greater. She says so in Joshua 2.9. I know the Lord has given this land to you. Even she recognized it by faith. And before we get all uppity about prostitutes being in the Bible, go to Matthew 1.5 and you'll find her name in the lineage of Jesus. Rahab the prostitute. Boaz, Ruth, through that line. And she's there. And many of these heroes of faith that we've briefly looked at this morning had to act on things they couldn't see. They had to trust God and act on it. They knew their journey would end somewhere, but some of them weren't too clear where it was. Moses certainly knew where he was going. Joseph certainly knew where he wanted to go. And we're told this in such a way that God is saying to us that we must live trusting God for every step of the way. Even if the guidance feels cloudy, even if there's uncertainty, because one day, my friends, we will live in the land that God has promised. We will be God's people in God's place enjoying God's blessing and living under his rule. As I said earlier, that's heaven. And this Hebrews 11 chapter, which I dearly love, is a beautiful picture of this journey that God's men and women of faith took and one day ended up, yes, for them, in the promised land. For us with him in glory forever. Trust him. Live by faith. Even though we can't see, we trust in a God who makes promises, keeps them, and will deliver them when one day you and I will see each other in glory. Look forward to it. Amen.